And at the beginning of acting class, it's always about sharing about your accomplishments for the week, which, ugh, just get over it. But it was like, oh, I'm testing for this show. I'm reoccurring on this show. And they got to me and I was like, well, I farted in my audition today. Not once, but twice. Don't think I'm going to get that. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. I've got a great episode for you today. I know I pretty much say that every week, but I do actually mean it. Today's guest is Alicia Oxy. Now, I was jealous of this woman. I found out there was a podcast called That One Audition. I searched for it on Apple Podcasts. I found the cover to reveal that its creator and host was beautiful and she seemingly had all of her stuff together regarding the branding of it. And I looked down, I thought, what, what is this podcast, this acting podcast? This can't be as good as mine. And um, not that mine is strictly an acting podcast, but I looked at it and I was jealous. I had an envious bone in my body or more. And I looked down the list of guests. I saw a ton of familiar faces, great actors, and then I listened to a solo episode titled Wednesday Wisdom, and ironically, I had just thought, oh, I might start adding something called Wednesday Wisdom, and I I listened to her, and I found her advice and her take on the business to be really solid and in line with what I thought, and I'm going, huh. Then I looked her up, and I realized that she has worked opposite some greats like Matthew McConaughey, Lawrence Fishburne, and then... I said, okay, uh, I'm done. I was done with the jealousy. I was actually like, I like this person. And she asked me to be on her show, uh, that one audition. And I realized in talking to her, she really is on the same mission as I am. Uh, she wants to let actors know they're not alone in their struggles. They are enough. They need to embrace their flaws if they have any hope of advancing in this crazy industry. And her heart is really in the right place. She's super smart. She is ambitious. She's talented. And it really is my honor to bring her to 10,000 No's and to give you the female perspective on all of these themes that I've been ranting about since 2017. And she's you know, we joke, you'll hear me say it. She's got a great voice. Uh, ironically, wait till you hear what somebody said about her voice. Uh, it's all part of the the, the theme of, of today's episode. And, you know, in keeping with that theme of bringing together communities, uh, I've been reminding you every week, I've got the 10,000 No's Insiders Community, which we launched in January. It seems to be a big success right now. I am really happy with how the members have responded, what we're doing. Um, it's a private Facebook group, and these people have really bonded together, started to collaborate on some things, and we get together every Sunday and do a live video call and really go through. Uh, it, it's a lot of creatives in there, um, not all actors, but a lot of actors, filmmakers, and it's really 
um, these lives where we get to talk about what people are going through, how to reframe, what they can do, some strategy, some technique, um, some logistics, and then also mindset stuff. So if you are interested in that, there is a link for 10,000 No's Insiders in the show notes. And you can also go to 10,000nos.com and just look for the 10,000 No's Insiders tab and go there and watch the video and get uh, a little more in-depth explanation of it. And um, I want to remind you that season two premiere of City on a Hill, the show I've been working on this whole past fall and before the pandemic is uh, finally coming out March 28th, Sunday night, 10 p.m. on Showtime. Kevin Bacon, Aldous Hodge, uh, really excited about that. So check it out if you are subscribed to Showtime. If you are not, go subscribe to Showtime and check it out before the season comes out. For right now, I bring you the great Alicia Oxy. First of all, thank you for for doing this. I'm so glad to be doing it. I've been into your book for the last couple of nights and losing sleep because it's captivating. You're a hell of a writer, man. Thank you. Thank you. After having you on the podcast and talking to you about having McConaughey scorn of him having his book out, this is... This is fantastic. It's really great. It's really captivating. I'm glad that you were able to put into words what so many people struggle with. Thank you very much. That's nice to hear. I think I've been, um, you know, a closet writer for a long time. I was an English major in college. So I've, I've written, but I've never really, you know, this was, it was, it was a really therapeutic experience. Actually, that that's actually a good segue because one of the things I found out about you was that you wrote a book, uh, yeah. Life Letters. I have that. Yes. The You have a, a uh, what is the subtitle? Key to Your Soul, A Journey into the Self. And it sounds like it is like your, your journey and my journey, I feel like are very parallel with yes. your podcast uh, for people that are listening and don't know of it. Uh, it's called that one audition and it's really good. And I've really just begun listening and um, it, we have, it's kind of like the, we are like the male and female version of each other. And yeah. I, I love the vibe of it. And talk to me a little bit about the, the book when you wrote that, was that, did that predate the podcast or was the podcast first? Oh no, the book was predate podcasts for sure. I, um, I going with the, along the, the lines of no's, I was getting ready to get married and I called it off. And I always talk to other women, you know, when you're, when somebody proposes to you, the man has had time to think about it, right? You're, you've like, put thought into doing it, getting the ring, doing this. When a woman gets proposed to, it's so, it's surprising for most women. I think it's surprising. So it's been really shocking to me how many women have said no in person. I didn't say yes for like 49 minutes. I remember him even being like, you didn't say yes, but he proposed from the other room. Matt, he was in the, I was brushing my teeth and he was like, so something, something about, I was like, what is this? What? And I was so shocked by it. So I didn't say yes. So like 49 minutes later, then I said yes. And then I spent the next nine months trying to figure out how do I get out of this? 
but I loved him as a person, but I was like, this isn't for my forever person. And I meditate in the shower. For some reason, my meditations come to me with water and every shower for the next nine months was me daydreaming about us being friends and having significant others and that this, this wasn't the guy. Well, also this is very telling of my personality. Even if I've made a decision, I'm such a people pleaser. I think a lot of actors are. And I'm not very good with boundaries. And as a child, I was not taught healthy boundaries. So for me to express something that I want, um, if it's going to hurt somebody else's feelings, I have a really hard time doing it. So, and I have a hard time with change. So calling off the wedding sent me into a massive tailspin where I wanted to blame everything that he was to not be the guy that I wanted to marry. Horrible. Um, I ended up going on my pseudo honeymoon to heal my broken heart. And, um, and I was going to write a letter to him every day on how he could be the better man to suit who I was. How like, how egotistical, like how interesting when you're in depression or when something's not working out for you and spirits like calling you to do something else, your humanness wants to be like, no, no, no. If we could just make the exterior align with the interior, it'll be fine. When it's the opposite, if the interior is aligned, the exterior mirrors that. Yeah. So once I, I hiked up my Mount Sinai, praying to God, thinking I'm going to write all these letters to him every day that I'm here and he's going to get who I am, got to the top of Mount Sinai, massive constellation of a question mark in the sky. I was pissed. And then the next morning I had to walk down it. I am terrified of heights. It shocked me into my system. Um, and at clear as day, I heard like the letters are for you. Like I, I didn't know who I was as a woman, as an artist, as, um, I think my parents would always like, they'd always say to me, we're not worried about you. You're worried about your sister. So I feel like I missed out on a certain nurturing of, of who I was that I think a lot of children get, or hopefully get what I'm trying to do. So I'd spent my life replicating what other people wanted me to be to please them. So here I was 27 years old and I was like, I don't even know if I want a sandwich or a salad for lunch. Like, what do I like? So this process literally came out of a survival to get to know myself, to date myself, to give myself a year because I was a serial monogamist at that point too. I, I didn't want to jump back into something and then be a be mirroring back to them who they were. I wanted yeah. to figure out who the hell I was. So I did this process. I never thought about it as a book. And then after that year, I changed so significantly that people were like, what was that letter thing that you were doing? And so then I just put it into a book and I'm not big on self-help. I have a gazillion of the books, but I get halfway through them and I stop. So I wanted this to be like something you could pick up at lunch, look at it really quickly and be like, yeah, I, I dig this process. I'm going to do it. Or no, I'm not. And you didn't procrastinate in helping yourself or you don't yeah. feel worse. You know, those dense books about self-help and you read them over and over and you're like, what the hell did I just read? And now you've just spent six months trying to read that. So that was totally serendipitous, meant to be something that helped me. It was, yeah, it was not intentional. And then a couple of years later, I did the podcast. Like two years later, I think I started the podcast. And, and did the podcast also come out of that same kind of, I, I feel like there was, there was some reference to it. And one of your, one of the, you have the Wednesday wisdoms, which I love. Um, 
you talked about like there was there was like a fart in an audition or something like that. And I don't yep. know if that was like a literal thing or if you were just like a figurative thing, but what sparked your podcast? Because it's, it's very well listened to. It's really uh, caters to actors. Um, so talk, talk to me about that. <laughs> um, yes, it did come from flagellation. Mm-hmm. Two times. Um, I was in the, in, the, same audi- in the same audition, in the same audition yeah. while running in a bikini. I mean, talk about the height of rejection. So literally an Axe body spray commercial. It was a callback. It had to be in my bikini. It was just, you know, a whole men full of a whole room full of men. Um, in the middle of the audition, I was running against another woman. I like to say for the sake of the story, looked like Giselle because she did. She had no cover up on when she rolled up in there. And we were running next to each other. I fired it. I looked at her and I was like, <gasps> so proud of my improv skills at that moment. And then we kept running and I did it again. So I shamefully left the room. It erupted in laughter. I went to class that night and I was in class with Army Hammer and Abigail Spencer. Now everybody knows who they are, but like at that time, you know, was, and people were going around and at the beginning of acting class, it's always about sharing about your accomplishments for the week, which ugh, get, just get over it. But it was like, oh, I'm testing for this show. I'm reoccurring on this show. And they got to me and I was like, <laughs> Well, I farted in my audition today, not once, but twice. Don't think I'm going to get that. And then it kind of, everybody starts sharing these stories about failure or um, mishaps. And I was like, this is so interesting because I was uh, volunteering with young storytellers at the time. And I saw how young kids were, you know, looking up to actors that would come in and were put on this pedestal to because we're on TV, but nobody looks at how much we've failed to get there or the humiliating things that we do on a daily basis to get there. So my, my thought was, I'm going to do 101 most unforgettable auditions as a book. Did six years of interviews, could not get anybody in the world to give me a publishing deal. Just nobody cared. Like I wasn't a star. They're like, once you finish the book, let me know. I finished the book. William Morris met with me and they're like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. And so rejection, rejection, rejection. And then one day I was sitting at a dinner party and I was so over spending six years on this book and then I can't get it anywhere and the guy that was sitting next to me just out of nowhere started talking about this podcast he had. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And somebody's like, you should tell him about your book. And I'm like, nobody cares about my book. <laughs> like, it's not happening. And then I started telling him about the book. And he was like, why aren't you doing it as a podcast? And I was like, I don't, well, Deb Aquila told me she hated my voice. And I think that's really weird to put a podcast. It's my voice. And he was like, I think you have a pretty dope voice and you got three years of content just sitting right there. And I was like, okay. So that- You already had them recorded. You had three years of- I had six years of interviews, but when I had, had, at that point, I'd probably interviewed close to 200 people and they were just sitting there on a recorder. And some of them I'd started to transcribe and like Kevin Farley had this amazing story and he's so funny. Sounds so much like Chris, obviously, but it didn't transcribe. And I started to notice I was running into this issue of like, I I have all this great content, but I can't get an outlet to let me put it out for people. So that, that dinner party, he came over two weeks later. He's like, I will walk you through how to launch as a podcast. And he looked at the roster that I had. He was like, this is going to do so well. I cannot believe you've been sitting on this gold mine, but I couldn't, it was a lot of no's. It, it, like my yeah. whole life has been 
so many no's. I, I can't. And really it's, I, I, you always hate it when people would tell me, God, Lish, you're going to do well. Cause you're so resilient. I hated that word up to like three months ago, up to the beginning of my divorce. I hated it. Now I'm, I admire that the age that I'm at right now, I've been told no so many times that when I'm sitting at like traffic lights and stuff, if I ever get to a place of being honored for the craft that I put out in the world, I think the number one thing that I always come back to besides gratitude is gratitude for the nose because it, it continued to make me work harder for it. And I, that's the only thing I think that keeps me going is, is that now I think I'm addicted to that. Like I, I I can't do it. You don't, I'm not allowed to do this. Okay. Then I'm going to try even harder. That's just become part of my DNA yeah. and everything I've done creatively. It hasn't come with at least five years of nose or plus. I, I, I love the story about having all of those interviews six years worth, which is, you know, three years of content, whatever it might be and sitting on them. Um, I, I don't even know if I ever put this out. I think I did, but it was something titled like uh, how many symphonies are wasting away on your hard drive? Because I realized this book, which I didn't, th this came about through the podcast very recently, like last year. And it came about really quickly, but I was going through my computer over COVID and from 2012, I had, I had always wanted to write a book that was all the lessons I had learned. And it was like, you know, part memoir, part kind of teaching, whatever. It was basically this book. And I wrote like possible titles and in a list of like 10 different titles, 10,000 no's was one of them. And mm. I didn't even really remember that, that I knew that that was before, that was four years before the podcast existed. But like how, you know, you have this podcast that's very successful that you were sitting on mm -hmm. um, because of your own knows your self-imposed knows and and so many people that are listening to this show are sitting there i would imagine a lot of them just sitting on a gold mine i mean i have something that i've, I've been concocting for a while and i've been saying this to people for the last month or two i'm like i'm sitting on a gold mine it's just something that i've been kind of developing and i'm like it's it's in it's the internal nose and that's what I've realized having this show is that I thought I was doing it because of all the no's that I got from the world. And I'm beginning to realize that most of the no's, you know, it's the no that we give ourselves before we get the chance to be told no by someone else. I've also had a bunch of external no's, but you know. Right. And also I think delineating what kind of person you are and deducing what the no externally means. So Deb Aquila telling me she absolutely despised my voice. Who's a big cat for people that are listening that aren't acting. It's a big casting director. She's the gatekeeper to some great films, some great projects out there. She was so turned off from my voice. Now I can't tell you in the three and a half years that I've been launched as a podcast, how many compliments I get on my voice. And, but what I did is I took that external one. No, I took one. No, and made it my, put it into my belief system. Whereas what I just said a second ago, you know, my parents telling me no, or other people, certain other no's actually activated me. So now sometimes when I get a no, I try to sit in, um, 
is this aligning with the belief system I've told myself about who I am or is this an activation no? And I try to, to externally let certain no's fall to the wayside so I don't make the same mistake again. Even as a child, I knew I wanted to act. I could, everybody told, put so much shame around it for me or my parents didn't know what to do with it. So instead of pushing it forward more, I, I use that as the belief system. I took that on as my belief system. I can't, I must not be able to do this. Where so, did you grow up? Sorry to interrupt you. Where did you grow Kentucky. up? Kentucky. Kentucky. And mm-hmm. you, and nobody was in this uh, business at all. No, mm-hmm. not, you know, like I always say on my podcast, if you can see it, you can be it. And it's really important for us to put out stories. And I want to expose my child to as many different things that are out there in the world. So she can see it and believe that it's possible. Uh, you know, t- not to date myself, but, you know, we had like dial up internet. There was no way for me. I could watch people on TV. And even when I was in kindergarten, I wrote, I, when I grew up, I'm going to be in the TV. I was cognitively aware of wanting to entertain. Um, but no, my mom put me in modeling. She didn't know. She didn't know. No, no shame on her game. My mom's in banking and my dad is an engineer. What the hell were they going to do with me? You know, they didn't know. And I couldn't see anything around me. And also for some reason where I grew up or in any small town, I would say, going back to what I said earlier, acting's put on this pedestal just because we're in your living rooms every day. They look at this profession as like being special, being seen. Um, I didn't look at it as special. It was something that was burning in my heart. So what got activated was, oh, you think you're special. Well, I think everybody's special. But that shame, I didn't want to... I want it to be included. Like as a child, we had, I'd moved from Missouri to Kentucky when I was nine, 10. So at that point, I just want it. And even in Missouri, I wasn't allowed to play outside. It was a very interesting upbringing. Um, so that need for inclusion and acceptance allowed me to keep that dream really far back to not be excluded anymore. I didn't want people to think that I was trying to be special. Right. You know? So you kind of hid your light under a bushel a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. As much as possible. As absolutely. You, you, you played sports in college. What, what did you play? I didn't play in college. I blew out my knee senior year. Talk about a lot of no's. I blew out my knee senior year. Um, my best friend died six weeks later. So I stopped going into therapy. Um, I was state level track runner as well. And my sister's dream was to hand off to me in a relay. So the injury happened. I was, I was training with the Bengals, uh, football coach and team to get back for the track year. And then my best friend died and I slipped into a really dark depression. I think denial for like six months, um, it was a rough year. And then that year is when I was like, okay, I, I want to start figuring out how to get into acting. Like that was the beginning of me starting to be like, okay, all right, this sports thing is done. I'm not going to get my, I think I had like a partial scholarship for soccer. Um, that went away and I had a academic scholarship still that I could rely on. So then that's when I started to kind of play, play with and what I wanted to do. That was your senior year of high school that that happened mm-hmm. that your friend died? I'm so sorry. Yeah. Did, and did you go to college, undergrad? 
Yes. I went to the University of Kentucky, um, did three years there, graduated or well, kind of early on time. I was starting to come out here and try to figure out the industry. Like I said, I had nobody in to help me. I knew one person in Los Angeles. So I was flying out here. I um, kind of got, got in reality game. Like they were trying to get me into the reality world. And I was like, is this how you get in? I mean, this was like, I was open to anything. Thank God for all the no's. I literally, I don't think I've ever said this, but I was a finalist for the real world Las Vegas. Was it Las Vegas? It was the, it was the, uh, it was the season that went really off the rails and it was between me and another girl. And thank God I did not get that show. Um, so I was take, I took a semester off school and then I came back and I took 27 credits. I took 27 hours and got out here as soon as I could right after that. Really? So you Mm went, so LA was your first and only stop. Did not do East Coast. Yeah. No, my dad, I'd wanted to go to New York in in the summer times off of school. I was going to go and start doing classes and just, just jump around town. And he deterred me from doing that. He was like, no, New York's not going to be good for you. Go to Florida. And I listened to him. I went to Florida. It was like the weirdest, again, the people pleasing. Um, I don't know. I wanted to. And then when I, yeah. And then when I went to LA because I knew one person in Los Angeles. So it was like the one place that I knew I could get out here to kind of figure, start figuring it out. I was so green. Talk about the, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what did you, um, like what, what was the path from going out there, not knowing what you're doing to eventually, working eventually, you know, I don't know what the time frame was between that, like something like true detective, you were like, what year were you coming out of school and going to LA? When were you starting? Like in the, um, I came out here in 2003, um, found out I needed to have jaw surgery in 2004. So then I had braces for a year. So acting was not on the table at all. Had my jaw broken, um, decided in that year, I was like, this acting thing's going to be really fucking hard. Do I, do I want to, do I, do I want to really do this? Is this, or is this just like a childhood thing that I've now put so much stuff on? Cause I didn't have a teacher. I didn't have a mentor or somebody be like, I see you go do this thing, which is what I do on my podcast. I always find that one person where I'm like, Oh yeah, they have that person that believed in them. Didn't have that. Yeah. Um, so during that year I was like, okay, God, um, if there's anything else I'm supposed to do, just put it in my lane. Like, please just make it so, so obvious. I just, I don't let me go through this misery that my parents keep telling me that it's going to be terrible for me. Like, cause I kept hearing the language. Oh, it's so hard. It's going to be so terrible. It's you're not going to, I don't know. I don't know if you're going to do it. The week I got my braces off, I booked two movies in a commercial and I was like, okay, okay, okay. Okay. I'm in. I knew nothing though. I made every mistake you could possibly make. I was so green. I had nobody to help me. Um, So the way I stumbled into eventually even getting something as great as True Detective was trial and error of like getting, getting a movie, that movie that I got, I got on set. I did really great in the audition, but I was not skilled enough to to understand character. And I was saying things that I was not comfortable saying. So that movie did not go well. Like there was just, I had to learn on the job. I am a total learn on the job person. 
I was uh, going to a ton of different acting classes around to just figure out what what is this that I'm doing. And then I stumbled upon Warner Laughlin, um, and it was the first time that I found a technique that was able to I was able to step outside of who I was as Alicia, and I fell in love with the creation of character and story. And from that point forward, there was a different ownership that I had with my job. And I think it was also the first time that I was able to say, I'm an actor. Um, I write as well now that we know that, but also when I was a kid, I had a terrible AP writing teacher that scorned me. So I stopped writing. So then around this time I started writing and I had a teacher that said, a writer is someone who writes. So then that night, I remember going home and being like, well, then an actor is somebody who acts. I'm acting. I, I had to get over my own shame around what I wanted to do so I could do what I wanted to do. And what was it about the, Warner Laughlin? I don't know. Uh, the, what, 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 what was the technique or what was it about that philosophy that kind of that resonated for you that shifted something for you? For me, it was the creation of character from a psychological standpoint and also behavioral patterns. For me, whenever I was getting an audition, I was, of course, doing an extension of myself and trying to understand, but I didn't actually have a technique. And I had read something, and Amy Adams did this beautiful article in Vanity Fair about the type of personality that she was and how acting was challenging for her because if there was anything that made Amy nervous... Um, she wasn't able to do it. And I think it was really the container that I've come in, I've had a lot of shame around and under, you know, and I w- was made to feel really badly for looking the way that I look. Now coming to an industry of acting, looking the way that I look, certain roles that I was going out for, very sexualized roles, I didn't feel comfortable So then here comes this tension of wanting to do this. So for me, also acting, I've come to this passion as a child. For me, it was really interesting to explore people who are really misunderstood and, and, and explore their vulnerabilities so they become understood, you know, and that I think is who I am at the core too. So what Warner's technique allowed me to do was to really investigate misunderstood characters and then bring forth elements outside of who I was to, to screen. And for me to find the confidence in that I could step aside and develop these characters. And I think I started with her in 2009. That's when I really started working. When Lucy came along on true detective, the ownership I had at that point in my instrument allowed me to fight for her in a way that I had never had the experience of fighting. Um, to, she was in my bones. There was something about the way I was uh, developing character from a psychological standpoint and understanding them from them ch- the childhood forward that just, I've, I fell in love. And it was like the perfect mountaintop, right? I'd been studying this technique for a while, incredible writing, you know, Matthew coming off of Dallas Buyers Club and trying to change his whole direction of his career to be taken seriously. And then um, Terry Fukunaga, who's one of the best filmmakers, I think. So it was opportunity meeting years of preparation and years of failure that yeah. just happened to crystallize in that moment. And I've been trying to 
capture that moment again since. I had it this past year. I did uh, a series for Quibi called Free Ray Sean with Lawrence Fishburne. I had uh, Annabelle oh. Fish on the show and I know she did that for a little bit. She was with you guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Gish is one. It was Gish, Fish, and Lish. That was our like trio because we were in the truck together. And that was six years, seven years between projects. So that's the thing that I think with a creative job or any job, entrepreneurial job, it's the direction of how many no's that you get that that's why if anything, if I'm ever to to be given any sort of um, a moment to speak on something that I do do well, it is the amount of no's and the amount of rejection that I've had that has had me be able to go back and work harder at it and get better at it. So it's things have never been easy for me, relationship, family, um, working. It's been my resilience that has eventually made those things work in a way that feels good to me. Yeah. And, and also I think that that feeling that way that that it's never been easy is what makes you, your podcast, which is connecting with people and teaching people, guiding people in some way, uh, it makes you more relatable, I think, because you've kind of been through it. So you're going like, yeah, here I am. I've had some, uh, some high points and I've also had a lot of low points and people can hook into you for that reason, I, th- I think. And I'm, I'm just curious, like the, and, and, you know, you can feel free to say like, no, we're not going there. But the, the shame around the way you look growing mm-hmm. up, um, was that from like from other girls that were your age? Was that from because you were uh, blonde and you, you blue eyes and it, was it that kind of a thing where and then you 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 kind of shrunk well, yourself what what was that well about? this is a really interesting upbringing that's i'm i'm happy to unpack it um i grew up in i was in Fer- right outside ferguson missouri until i was about seven or eight so i was the minority which i had no problem with i was a child i didn't know any different um it was it was a community that my father would not let me play outside So I would sit at a window and watch everybody else outside playing. Um, I had one friend, Marcus, but Marcus had to go home before my dad got home. I was, you know, there was extreme racism at hand. So, but here we were in poverty. So I'm excluded because the way that I look and also my dad's judgments of the way everybody else looked in our neighborhood. So I'm raised one way like that. And then we moved to Kentucky where there's absolutely no diversity at all. And I was a new girl in school. And then I was ostracized because of that. So whatever, I can't put myself in the viewpoint of like what other people thought of me at that time. But I don't remember ever, you know, my kid is constantly in front of her in the front of the camera now in front of the mirror. I never saw myself on camera. I didn't really think, know what I looked like until I was 12. Um, I'd done some modeling, but like 2d pictures, like you can't really see how you look. Um, so I wasn't really aware of that side of me. I just knew that it was off putting to some people. Also, I think I'm, I have a little girl and I'm doing my best to watch the language that I use around her. 
Now, my mom, whenever I would get a compliment for the way that I look, my mom would take it away in a certain language. I don't think what she was doing was trying to take it away. She was trying to raise me in a way in which I wasn't dependent upon the way that I looked. So I understand the psychology of what she was trying to do now as an adult. But what happened is every time somebody would compliment me on the way that I looked, it was immediately taken away. So I started to internalize some shame around that. So it was, even to this day, even even with acting roles, I like the character stuff because I can, I don't, I don't see myself the way I look exteriorly. And I think that was a combination of, of all of those things of being raised in a certain way, not seeing myself initially feeling shame around not being able to go outside and play with everybody else that was playing because of my dad's belief systems. And this is how I study acting. My dad belief system really curated shame around it. My mom belief system, my mom's a beautiful woman and she wasn't allowed to do certain things and wasn't allowed to go to school. And so then her belief systems are trickling down and it just kind of was a bit of a recipe and I was never spoken to about it. And I was brutally hazed and high school and junior high. Um, By older girls or? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thrown in lockers, slapped. I had my school picture torn up and put in a pile of shit. Like you, it, I was really, really harassed. Um, school's hard, man. I'm terrified for my kid. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, I always, I always felt really misunderstood. And that usually that first impression, even casting directors, when I go into a room and there's a woman in the room, um, I do everything that I can to be as disarming as possible to not have a first impression be so triggering or their assumptions to be made. Like we all make assumptions, right? So I'm doing my best not to have assumptions. and And how do I raise a beautiful little girl that isn't dependent on her looks, but doesn't also shame her for the container that she's in? Right. Right. It's such a tricky, first of all, I'm just thinking about the kids in school and, you know, I've got two kids as well. And you just, yeah, you, you, you know, on one hand, worry about that. On the other hand, I I speak to so many people on this show that, um, you, you know, their, their childhood in some ways, like maybe they were ostracized or they were or whatever, you know, abused in some way. And you see how that's not the end of the road. And they, they uh, go on to have these very full lives. And so you're kind of going, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like, you want to tell your kids, like, stay in the game, no matter what happens, this is not the way it will, it will always be. Um, there's, there's progress to be made and, but it's still, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to see any little kid get, um, kind of have their, their heart trampled upon, you know, because they're so innocent and they don't get it. And a lot of times it's not justified at all. Um, you know, no, it's not. But again, retrospect, if I, you know, was really welcomed where I grew up and school was really easy and everybody was really nice. Would I have ever left? You know, would I have ever come to LA? I mean, my U-Haul was packed days before I graduated. I was ready to get out. Um, 
but yeah, and having, and consciously raising my child, you know, how do you delineate from protecting your child or, um, creating adversities? Like, I hope that the adversities that she experienced don't come from within the home, but there is something to be said about, um, overcoming certain things that for some reason that, that is, this is what my path has been. Yeah. Yeah. You, you talked before about, um, between True Detective and Free Rayshon, um, you talked about this gap, but I, I also know you did. It's not like you didn't work. You worked a lot, but those were high points. Those mm-hmm. were maybe more artistically fulfilling experiences um, than, than a lot of the others. What kind of, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you navigated your way through that because you know true detective was one of these zeitgeist shows um and you you had you had that you weren't you weren't in every episode but you you had something nice and meaty and you go from that how do you process like after that it kind of slows down i've had my version of it which if you're reading the book you've you've read um at least some of that and it's and it's tough sometimes you're like tail between the legs you know going back to having to put your ego aside how did you kind of um get your way through that and 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 then well, that's it for now. <laughs> How did you get your way through? I that? I made some bad decisions. I, um, I kind of I, I got after True Detective, the first episode came out. I got an offer for a film and I accepted it. That film continued to get pushed. Within that same week, I booked two reoccurring roles that I had to turn down both of them. Now, my why, my dream at that point was to get on television. So. Why did I take that film? Again, when I say my life has been made, my I make I'm I make mistakes. I make a ton of mistakes, and then I have to learn from them. So I was like, how did I just get stuck? Because I think there would have been more success on the heels of True Detective if I would have made a different decision. Mm. Um, and at that point, I needed money, so I took the film. So I tell people all the time, go back to your passion, because when I watch people make decisions based on character, based on things now, obviously I need money. I needed money at that time. Um, but there was so much for me still to learn about the business side of this. You and I talked about this a little bit on the podcast as well is like when you have relevancy at a certain point, you have to hit at that moment and you have to make something of it because there's only a certain amount of relevant mountain peak moments in your life. And you can literally see the valley between the two. Now, like you said, I was still working, but it wasn't this consistent. I was working, I would probably do six projects a year, which is great, which is great. They might all happen in two months. They might all happen throughout the year. I created other stuff. I had to like, just, that's why I think somebody said to me the other day, um, why do you think you created the podcast? I was like, cause I farted in an audition. They're like, no, I think you created the podcast cause you were so um, frustrated with your own career. And I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. It's also why I started writing. It's also, I have two other podcasts that I'm launching in January. Whenever there's dry base on, on what I think should be filled with, with acting, something creatively comes out of it. So I'm able to kind of 
string together some experiences to keep me going, or at least keep something, create something within myself to keep me going. But I do, again, I just, I just kind of went back to learning. I had to learn what was like to even be on a show of that caliber. I had no idea. I'd never, also, we had no idea what true detective was going to be since it was season one. I didn't get the avalanche of relevancy that my girlfriends got that were in season two and season three. The whole year up to True Detective coming out, my team even said, this is probably going to be a a load of shit. McConaughey is coming off this. Like nobody knows what this is going to be. I'd seen footage and I was like, this is, uh, you guys, I think we should make this into something. It wasn't made into anything until those two weeks of my two episodes coming out. And then every casting director in town called because they thought my character was going to be going for a lot longer the way they set her up. And I was locked into that movie. Now, my girlfriend who signed on for season two of True Detective, in that year that it took for her to shoot it and for it to come out, I think she did six studio films. Again, it's just timing and then learning And again, being entrepreneurial, like I do look at acting as being an entrepreneurial job. It's just making mistakes on the job. Yeah. Business wise and creative wise. Well, well, what do you, cause I, I look at you, uh, you know, I know it's always, it's different when, when someone's looking at you from the outside versus what you see as, as you're going along, but I look at you from the outside and I think, Wow. She's, you know, the, the podcast to me seems, uh, like it's, it's very well run. It's very well, it seems like a good, a good business venture. Like you seem like a, a good business person to me. Um, like you've got, you've got a good operation going, you've got something that's, um, helpful to people. It's something that, uh, it, it feels real to me. It feels um, very well put together. And I do you do you look at that? Even those like uh, you know, like there's a there's a regret that you're you're talking about with the film taking the film. But do you do you have any part of you that looks at that and goes, you know, maybe I don't feel it yet, or maybe I do, but at some point. I'm going to look back and go, thank God I did take the film and mm-hmm. I did this and it led me to where I am now because now I'm going to be stronger mm-hmm. because I'm not relying on acting jobs because I have this whole little empire here. No, completely. 100%. I say that all the time on the podcast as well. And in private conversations, if my acting career would have been doing what I wanted it to do at that point, I would have not ever taken maybe I would have launched the book. Like maybe I would have gotten the publicity, like the publishing deal that I wanted, but then it wouldn't have been a podcast. And I just talked to somebody from Australia a second ago. I'm consulting her and her career. Like, I don't understand. Like you said, we're both behind mics and we're talking to maybe one other person, but we're not seeing the listeners that are out there. And for me, the, I always like to, I like to create something where I see a void. The podcast creation came out of a void of not hearing about other people's mishaps and failures along the way and how long it took them to actually get the win. What I really ended up doing is creating something, a a mentorship program of sorts. Like people are constantly writing in being like, oh my God, this episode I needed to hear, I'm going to keep going. So I am so grateful for 
the the six years of not being able to figure out what to do with the interviews and then putting it out on voice in voice way. I have I have IP that I optioned after having a child thinking I was never going to work again that is launching in January that I've been working on for four years. I have another show that I've been working. So I am insanely grateful that the things that I sometimes am, you know, they say shoot for the stars. And if you land anywhere in that arena, you're okay. So I do have a, a, a goal post in mind and anything that I'm picking up along the way, I'm insanely grateful for, but it takes four or five years for you to have that retrospect of gratitude. So I'm trying to have that retrospect of gratitude quicker, but, and I also just, I always like to say, especially in the podcast too, creativity knows no time. So if you're, and it comes at the right space, like the symphony, if you could have a symphony on your hard drive, yes, but it has a time that it wants to be played. And I have, I really truly believe in that. And I always like to give people time on the creativity because I think I had an idea that everything was overnight, even my career. I'm going to get here. I'm going to get my braces off. I'm going to be on a show. Okay. And then I'll be, then I'm going to get a series regular. Then I'm going to have a baby, like the plan, the plan, the plan, the plan. I never had, you know, until I started working with Warner, I never had somebody say, it's not a six-year sprint, it's a 60-year marathon. And so when I started looking at my creations in that way, like I have a documentary I shot two years ago. I haven't completed it yet. It hasn't had time. It hasn't had the time and it will, and it will have its own time. And who knows what's going to happen at that moment that I have to sit down now and go through all the footage in a foreign language that I do not speak and edit it together. So... I am grateful for the space in retrospect when I'm currently going through the void of not harnessing what I want as far as like being on set and getting to bring gorgeous, beautiful characters to life. Um, I I have to really uh, be honest and say that I do struggle with what is going, what, what am I supposed to be doing right now? Why... And then usually it's like going up the Mount Sinai. Usually I'm struggling with the question and like being really frustrated with the world. And then when I come back down on the other side of the mountain, it's usually when you get that hit, right? Or it makes sense. Yeah. It's like the climb doesn't ever make sense. I think the descent is when you can start to piece things together. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have, we have a very, um, it's funny, very similar, uh, very similar path. I mean, you know, so, d- different for in, in many ways, but there's a, um, th- there's, I think our response to uh, not being where we wanted to be has been somewhat similar. Um, and, you, and, oh. Do you ever think that you will be at a place where you want to be? Somebody asked me that the other day. Do you, they were like, do you think you'll ever be content with exactly where you are and not striving to be somewhere else? Not somewhere else, but somewhere else in my career. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I feel like I'm closer to, you know, I'll always have some part of me that will always want to strive. And I actually don't think that's a bad thing because I always want to be a student. So I always want to be learning. And I think part of learning is realizing that, you know, there there's there are things that you don't know, but I don't think that it, I don't, I don't think that it bums me out 
in the way that it it used, used to. to. It's more of a of a cool thing going oh, I still have things to, I'm not going to get bored. I'm never going to get bored. I mean, through COVID, some people would say, or even while I've been here in Brooklyn shooting the show, so I, I haven't really seen a lot of people. I've kind of isolated myself. I've seen family, but uh, largely, I, but I have so many things that I'm working on, kind of like you with the podcast, with some other projects on the side with my actual role. It's like, finally, I have time to sit here and watch documentaries on police. And it, it's, it's been incredible. Um, do I miss my family? Absolutely. But, but am I bored? No, like, I don't know that I'll ever, to me, there's not enough time in the day to feel bored. I, I mm. actually feel like, yeah. So, so, but, but to answer your question, yeah, I've had lately, I've had more of, no, granted, you're catching me in a particular time where I'm on a show right now and I've been here for a bit. So it's a particular spot, but I am very aware of, and it's not perfect. It's not like it's, there, there are things if I want to get into, you know, the nitty gritty, but for the most part, I'm very aware of how grateful I am, how fortunate I am, um, how beautifully things have, have, have come together at this particular moment. I also have, you know, the knowledge that things are not on a steady line. So you just never know what's next for better or for worse. Um, but maybe a little bit more, um, uh, maybe I feel a little bit more accepting of my current reality than I, than I ever have. Um, and, and also like professionally things could be great. And then like COVID is, my kids are both, you know, distance right. learning. And that's been a nightmare that my wife is, is dealing with alone for a long time, you know? So there's like, the other thing is like, yes, yes, it's great. And also it's just like another version of what it was and what it will be that I think that's a little bit of just what life is. Um, I do too. I know? think the striving is, I, I've interpreted the striving into seeking. I'm constantly seeking new adventures or new things to learn in the void of of maybe not being on set or not getting to, because when I'm on set, when I'm doing what I love to do, I'm seeking out, I'm seeking more about my characters, more about the story. You're in a seeking place right now. So there's a fulfillment in having that um, a job, that responsibility, I think is really beautiful. And I think when people are in a creative job when you're, as an actor, you don't have control of when you're going to work, then in order to... Um, feel content for lack of a better word. There's something I'm, I have to take that seeking energy and I have to put it into something else, which has then ballooned into the, the various different podcasts or writing right. or doing a documentary or. But that's what I was, I was going to say, as you're saying that I'm thinking, well, you are seeking and you are actually doing to me when I see what you're doing with the podcast. Now I know there's maybe there's a difference between exactly what you want to be doing versus this, but it, it is a version. What I, what I see from the outside as I look at you and then what I'm, I, I think, you know, 
proud of in some way for myself is that when when other people weren't giving us opportunities, we're giving ourselves the opportunity to be creative or to be curious or to be in, in, in many ways, this, you know, the podcast is a much more creative venture than I ever would have thought it was when I set out to do it. I thought it was just a curiosity thing. It, there is also a creative element. There's a, there are, there are many things about it where I'm sure you feel this way too, where all of a sudden I look back and I go, I actually stopped counting the number of episodes. I don't know how many I've, I, I was very concerned about which episode I would number them. And then at a certain point I was like, I don't really care. I'm just going to do it. Like, because I'm just going to do it for, I don't, I mean, for the foreseeable future, I don't know when I'm going to stop. And I was like, it's not really even about the number. It's just about it's just about the actual thing. And all of a sudden I look back and I go, oh, I've been producing a show. I mean, granted, it's an audio show. It's not like a television show, but I've been producing a show for three and a half years, basically, yeah. you know, a lot of it on my own. And now I have help. Uh, yeah, but, exactly. But I, you know. Yeah, no, I love it. I And I also, as a creative, it was the first time like, choosing my music, choosing my uh, cover art. I, I composed everything from day one with the goal in mind of when Tom Hanks gets requested to do this, that he will listen to it and say, yeah, I'll do that. I mean, that's the, I became an actor watching Tom Hanks. I just, I mean, I'm just who he is. I, so that's my ultimate guest. You know, I've had Lawrence Fishburne on the show. I've had incredible people on the show, show. but, and, and my curiosity and my seeking is, is I think what has kept the show going. Cause I genuinely love people. I I study human condition for a living. That's what I love. So here's just a different extension and different element of it. And I get to decide if I put out an episode next week, which I cannot stop. People are like, you have to stop at some point. You have to take a break. But no, I have a standard now for myself that there's an episode that goes out every Tuesday and sometimes Wednesdays. I didn't do seasons either. I went straight to a hundred episodes, no seasons. And at that point I had a great crew of people working with me and they're like, you need to take a break. So my break was re-releasing for two months and, but I was still doing interviews because I can travel. And I, when I, when we were traveling, when I was working in Atlanta, New York or Florida, wherever I was working, I would put that stuff on my back and whoever I was working with, you know, you're kind of quarantined together before quarantine was a thing for three weeks, six weeks. And that's where I got a lot. uh, It just was fun. You know, you have a lot of downtime when you're on certain sets. So yeah, it, it is, I love this medium. I love being able to, it's interesting that I didn't get into it because I was afraid of my voice. And now I think I love it, especially from what we talked about earlier, not being judged for the way that I look and just being judged for who I am, who, like how I'm speaking. It's given me so much more, um, satisfaction about how I'm showing up in the world that I've, that I never expected. Never expected. Couple of things. One, when I you had me on your show, I don't think it's been out yet. But there's the first thing I said. I was like, I listened to some of yours, and I'm like, you're like a female me. You're like me with a better voice. And that, that, <laughs> so I did actually say something about your voice. And then, and then the other thing was, oh God, I just had something, and and I just completely 
lost it. Something that tied us back to the opening of what we were talking about in the very beginning. And now I can't, I can't remember it anyway. Might um, come back. Yeah. You, you, you are burning the candle at both ends in your creativity, doing interviews and working and all of the things. Yeah. It'll, it'll come to you about 11 o'clock tonight. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be like, Oh, that's what it was. I was going to had a great point for her. Um, well, I also know that you have a, uh, a, a slight dental emergency. So I'm going to, I'm going to let you get out. Cause I'm looking at the clock. I have, I have like a final three um, questions. Although one thing I did, I did think of that I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Um, before we get to those, you, I heard like, I don't know if it was just early on or at one point, or maybe it was in those, those, the period that you did the six years of just doing it, whatever. It seemed like you just took your equipment with you and would interview someone like maybe just sitting on set or at, even at a bar or something like that. And, and I, I think this is just something I want to touch on for people listening again, because I've held myself to this. I was like, okay, it's going to, it's going to sound a certain way. And, and uh, it's, it's, you know, it's not like it's not like I'm doing it in a studio, especially right now. I'm in this kind of bigger apartment, but you, you did something where you, you were just like, well, let's just get it. Like, let's just get the lightning don't worry about it being precious now. So if you literally just had it on set with you and you, you've had your mic and, and someone just, you're like, Hey, do you want to? No, those are interviews from the book. So when I started it as a book, I had a little transcriber recorder. Thank God I did this. And I started doing interviews in 2009. My neighbor and good friend at the time was John Bernthal. At the time, the bar that I used to go to, the bouncer was Jason Momoa. Like, all of my friends before they broke did these interviews for me. So Jason and I, it was after we, I think it's the Momoa one that I I think I'm sure where you were literally in a bar having wings and drinking beers. And I would sit down the recorder and be like, tell me an audition story. And people would tell me one audition story or they tell me 10. Uh, Steve Howie is another one. We went and sat at a coffee shop and he was telling, so anybody that told stories that were like, just so amazing and their voice quality was good enough. Um, I've released those. And then what I've also tried to do is go back to a lot of people and a lot of people that did them for the book have come back on and done the long form conversation, but people loved that shit. I also realized I was so precious at the beginning of launching as a podcast. I went and interviewed Eve at, in her, at the talk um, in her dressing room and her dog was there. Well, I was not about to ask Eve, the woman I grew up with, like wanting paw prints on my chest because of her having paw prints. Like I rap is a big, lives really deeply in my heart. So getting that interview was like, oh my God, I'm talking to Eve. I was not going to be like, can you make your dog be quiet? And do you mind if we could control the sound in here? Like I had already done a lot of interviews. People loved that they could hear her dog. So then I start, because at the beginning, I over-edited the shit out of this. I would take ums out. I would take dry space out. I was doing so much, which I'm glad that I did because I learned editing. But then I realized nobody cares. They actually want to feel like they're there with you. Now, certain things I try to take out, but that's what I, yeah. And when I do take it on set now, 
I still try to do somewhat of a quiet area, but I do realize it just doesn't matter if you're in an opportunity to create gold and you never know what you're creating at that moment is gold. When John and I sat and did the interview and he was telling me stories, I had no idea John's career would take off. Like John's in everything now. Like it, so you just don't know. With him. Yeah. And he told me, and yeah. he told me some great stories. Yeah. Oh, he's got some good ones. He's going to come on and supposedly give it all like this. Cause he doesn't want me to release those tracks, but I mean, he's, he's done everything at an audition down to getting arrested. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> I believe it. Let me ask right. you so I could get you out and get your, okay. uh, get your thing done. So, so, uh, the first one is the word no. You kind of said this already, but the word no means what to you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Game, game on. <laughs> the word no means game on. I'm, I'm one for a challenge. Okay. Uh, do you have a kind of a go-to mantra or just a, a, a philosophy on life? And maybe it's boiled down to a phrase, anything like that. When everything goes sideways, something that you believe in that gets you through it? I've got two mantras, especially that I've been cycling through my head lately. What is for you will find you. And no doubt it's unfolding exactly as it should. So it's like, I'm going through a pretty gnarly divorce right now. And every morning I'm like, this is for you. This is for you. It's not against you because it's just perspective, right? Whenever there's a big shift, transition, death, divorce, nose, whatever it may be, somehow this is for me. Yeah. And it's harder to see it in the moment. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the job is to look at it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. the last one is if you could, if you could give your younger self advice, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? Seven. I, mm, this is, a, ooh, this is, I, listen to your own heart instead of outside. There's so much that I think that I internalized. Um, and I, I admire every person that comes on my podcast because there seems to be a fire that was lit in them early on that, that wasn't blown out. So I think I would have preserved a little bit more of that fire. The fire's still there. I just think I let up. I, yeah, I don't know how to distill it down into that, but I just, um, I think I would go to that seven-year-old self. The way I study characters between ages five and eight, there's a trauma, there's a tragedy, there's some wiring that shapes who you are for the rest of your life. So I think seven was one of the integral places in my life where I had a deep awareness that I started to ignore. And I think if I would have followed, followed that, life would have been a little different, but that's okay. That's also where I am. No doubt it's unfolding exactly as it should. See yes. how that mantra really, every time I start to spiral, well, I'm like, but, huh, well, but also. Well, yeah, that's funny. Well, look, I, I was also going to say that, you know, if you think of it that way, that the fire was out, like I'm sitting here talking to you and I talked to you a couple of weeks ago for yours and the fire is absolutely not out. You have like a churning fire in you that's making documentaries and podcasts and other podcasts and acting and mentoring people. And, um, I don't think that's, 
one of your problems and maybe you have problems, but that's not one of them. Like the fire, that's not the problem at all. You are, uh, you are doing it all. And, um, I think it's really awesome. And, um, so then let me reframe that. I'll just say that the little girl that was staring out the window, like wondering how this life would unfold. I think I could tell her it's going to be okay. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other one foot in front of the other. Yeah. 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 No, it's, that's really so beautiful. And, uh, thank you for, for sitting down with me, Alicia, Oxy, everybody listen to, um, that one audition and we'll put stuff in the show notes so people can go find you and follow you and, you know, Instagram. I I know you're big on Instagram. Is it at that, at that one audition and at Alicia Oxy follow along. Yeah. Thank you so much for for sitting down. Yeah. You're really, really great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me really. What we do here is go back, 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 back. Okay. I hope you dug that as much as I told you, you would. I can't imagine if you're an actor that you're not getting tons of takeaways and you don't want to go check out her podcast. Really? Um, Here we go. Top three takeaways. Number one, everything is happening for you. Yes, there will always be times of discomfort in your life, but maybe the universe or God or whatever you believe in is making that happen so you can pursue something greater than you ever thought possible. If I, you know, was really welcomed where I grew up and school was really easy and everybody was really nice, would I have ever left? You know, would I have ever come to LA? I mean, my U-Haul was packed days before I graduated. I was ready to get out. Number two, just because it's not happening right now doesn't mean it never will. Creativity knows no time. Just create. Do that thing that sets your soul on fire and it will never be in vain. Just doesn't matter if you're in an opportunity to create gold and you never know what you're creating at that moment is gold. Number three, if everything is going wrong, take stock. If you feel like life is getting you down or you can't find the win, maybe it's time to dig deep inside yourself and address that before trying to change all the stuff you can't control. How interesting when you're in depression or when something's not working out for you and spirit's like calling you to do something else, your humanness wants to be like, no, no, no. If we could just make the exterior align with the interior, it'll be fine. When it's the opposite, if the interior is aligned, the exterior mirrors that. All right. That is it, folks. Alicia Oxy, thank you so much. Um, Really, really happy that we got to meet and connect. And I'm really happy that all of you got to hear this great conversation. Uh, Go check out all the links in the show notes. If you want to follow Alicia, you want to go check out her podcast. I really suggest it. Um, Again, 10,000 Knows Insiders Community. If you are interested, go check it out and send us an email. Sign up. You can sign up right there on the site if you want. And um, that is it. If you love the show, please just share it with your friends and family. Put it on social media, all that stuff. That would be really appreciated. Get the book. That's on the website as well. And really just enjoy the rest of your week. And Come back here Monday morning for Monday Morsel, little brief solo, and we'll be back here again next Friday for another full-length one-on-one interview with a guest. So that is it. Take care and uh, go get them. Go get them.